Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. This is episode 575 for the 17th of November, 2021. Vocalist Luciana Souza grew up in a family of bossa nova innovators. Her father, a singer and songwriter, her mother, a poet and lyricist. Her work as a performer transcends traditional musical boundaries, offering authentic jazz insight, sophisticated lineage in world music, and an enlightened approach to new music. While Luciana is a lover of words, having set the poems of Pablo Neruda and Elizabeth Bishop to music, she is also an expert in the art of wordless singing, effortlessly becoming another instrument and texture in small and large ensembles. Her work in this arena has seen her collaborate with Maria Schneider, The Yellow Jackets, and Vince Mendoza. Her most recent album, Storytellers, is out now on Sunnyside Records, and it sees her team up with Mendoza and the WDR Big Band to celebrate both these worlds, as always, with her impeccable musicianship. Here is my conversation with Luciana. And welcome to the Jazz Session. It's a thrill to have you here today. I am so happy to be here, Nikki. Thank you. We're going to jump in and jump all over because your discography is astonishing. You've just recorded and released your 10th album for the lovely Sunnyside Records. Thank you for reminding yeah, me. It's Thank 10. You. Some people are like, I don't know the numbers. I know the, I don't know the dates. And I'm like, that's where I come in. Take stock. Be amazed. <laughs> And the most recent album is called Storytellers, and it has these lush arrangements by the magical Vince Mendoza, and it's performed by you and the WDR Big Band, which is a formidable team. 
Yeah, for me, a combination made in heaven, you know, as you said, I mean, the, Vince is just a master arranger and composer also, and someone that I have admired and have wanted to work in a more collaborative way for so many years. And this was, I mean, we had worked before, I sang on one of his records and we had done, he, I commissioned him to arrange something for me many, many years ago. And then we became friends. And, and then when this opportunity came up, it was just such an easy process. And then of course, to go to Germany to record with one of the top big bands in the world. And these folks who come in every day into the studio, every day, all year round, they're salaried musicians, they come in and they have such beautiful disposition, but incredible, incredible professionalism and just a joy of playing together. And then for me as a singer, they have a sound. So you come in into a, already a formed team that can support you. And it was just a dream. I mean, I, I remember pinching myself, like waking up every day to go to the studio. And of course, fully jet lagged from LA to, you know, to Cologne, but uh, just feeling so, so happy to be there and in the presence of these, you know, incredible musicians. Well, as a listener, I'm so glad that you documented that experience so that we get to experience just a tiny bit of that magic and just imagine what it was like for you. And, and it wasn't really meant to be a record in a way. We didn't record it as a record. So those, I mean, I think, I think it's something that we often don't tell people is that we recorded as rehearsals. So as we were preparing them, the music had never been played before. And Vince and I had, he had been at his house and I had been at my house. We live in LA very close to each other, but I was busy, he was on the road. So we talked a lot on the phone and, but never met in person to really talk about things. So it was all done on the phone, long conversations and me, you know, sending him recordings, he's sending things back to me. And so when we got to, to Cologne, we, we just had to kind of shape the music, but of course it came with, you know, just beautiful articulations and, you know, all dynamics and everything from Vince, but then we had to adjust things. And, uh, and then I was so surprised also about the orchestration, the way he had things in such high, like, you know, piccolo to tuba, right? I mean, just, it wasn't a regular big band, standard big band that I've performed with, with Mario Schneider and Kenny Wheeler and, you know, a bunch of other people. It, he really expanded the sonic uh, colors of the big band. And that was also very interesting, but we didn't make it, we didn't set out to make a record. It became a record afterwards. So that was, that was a beauty of it too, is that we had so much fun rehearsing that when we documented that, it was like, okay, let's just take this, you know, and make it into a record. That's the insider info that I'm always looking for. And I was so excited to have you on today, not just because I know that you speak so beautifully and eloquently, but I also knew that you'd have these stories and these sort of things that we could glean only directly from you, from the source. So I'm delighted to talk about it. And, you know, the record came out March of 2020, which was doomsday, you know, <laughs> so we had this beautiful record with, we had, you know, a concert in New York at, at Columbia University, we had LA, we had Miami, and, you know, all these sort of pick up big bands with top musicians and everybody was ready to go and then we just couldn't do it. So we had to just stay home. And so the record kind of simmered, but I, I've had a chance here and there to speak about it and just to remember the feeling of the music, because that, that's something also that we as live performers, and I know you understand this very well, when we perform live, it's the moment and it's gone. So capturing it on tape is wonderful. And then being able to talk about it and remember what it felt like, it's just, you know, it's so joyous and, and beautiful, especially at this time when I haven't been on stage in a year and a half. And it's something I'm, I know I'm missing, I'm telling myself it's okay, 
but I know that my body craves it. And also the relationships that you develop with musicians, the interactions, the, the silliness, the conversations, the, you know, just the stuff that shows up then and there that you can never replicate. So I'm, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to speak about this music. I, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Oh, no, 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 no. The pleasure is all mine and ours. I speak on behalf of the listeners, which I'm sure they will they will hate. But I want to talk more about storytellers, but I also want to jump back a little bit. And for folks who don't know, you were born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and your nationality is very much a part of your musical identity. Can you share your thoughts on the intersection of your identity and your growing up in Brazil with the parents, the amazingly artistic and cultural parents that you did grow up with, and your music, where the two meet? Well, I don't think they meet. I think they are one and, and all. You know, there's no, as you said, I mean, it's my identity, but it's it's really, Brazil precedes my birth even. You know, it's like I, I'm, I'm a product of, of that place, of those parents. And it's not like my birth was inevitable, but it's like, you know, in a family of musicians, in, in musicians who had a lot of kids, I'm just another kid. But at, but being born in Brazil means you just carry that with you wherever you go. It's impossible to detach yourself. It's it's undesirable. It's not something I want to do ever. And it's such a heritage that you carry. I mean, when I, when I tell people that I learned to sing singing Jobim, I'm not, you know, I was born in 1966, so that music had been written already, most of it, but he was still very productive, still writing music through the 70s and 80s. And and he is the foremost composer that I've always bowed to. And most of my records, whenever they're not just exclusively my music, I have one or two or three Jobim pieces in it. Because, you know, he is, I feel my father in a way musically, as my father was, my, you know, my musical father. But Brazil is something that, it's it's in my skin tone it's in my accent it's in my you know the, the rhythm that the and the harmonic language that i speak and it's it's something that's so vast and so big that it belongs to all of us meaning i mean anyone from any place can also go and grab because it's so it's so abundant and brazilian music in itself just like american music but it's such a large country there's so many different pockets every region has a different style and rhythm so i can draw from all these traditions and i was lucky that my father was from the northeast my mother was from you know south from rio and and i was born in sao paulo so i really grew up and at a time that was so rich still musically mpb which is musica popular brasileira brazilian popular music of, of extremely great quality was still being made in Brazil. And I'm not saying that it's not being made now, but there has been a dilution of that sort of, you know, because of the fact that we are also eating the world in Brazil, we are consuming music. So our music, the, the, the more folkloric aspects of it have had a rebirth, but at the same time have been diluted. So I feel just very lucky that I was born there at that time with those parents in that family I mean, it's just, you know, it's serendipity. You, you, you don't know what's going to happen to you, but I feel just like it was a drop of luck that I was placed, you know, my soul was placed in that body at that time with that family and that I could grow up in that environment where my folks were, you know, we were poor, but we were so rich musically. And they they raised us, I, I think, so well in, when I, I'm now raising my own son and I see how much joy there was and how much freedom there was to, to, to experiment and try and make mistakes. In a way, they were jazz musicians, even though they didn't know, you know, they were like, just go and make it, go try, go, go do it. And, and so encouraging and also so serious. They were very serious people. They were, 
Um, they took care of their community. There was always lots of people coming through the house because there was a lot of food in the house because there were a lot of kids. So musicians would come through and eat. And that exchange also of, of whatever we had is yours, you know, that, that kind of feeling of community was something that stayed with me. And, um, and I just feel, I just really feel like every time I think about Brazil, and it pains me now to see the country in such terrible, terrible state, you know, and um, I, I truly hope that Brazilians can make a better choice voting very soon, next time, you know, and that we can lift ourselves from the state that we're in, which is deplorable. It's tragic. It's, it's tragic what's going on in Brazil right now. Oh, a harrowing time for so many, so many places the world over, what is happening. But Lou, you mentioned always including Jobim's music. Lucky for us, you have also included a vast amount of repertoire from lesser known Brazilian composers. And I have to touch on three albums that you made that are all connected. Brazilian Duos, Brazilian Duos 2, and Brazilian Duos 3. And these albums are seminal Sousa recordings. And I have to tell you that they did the rounds at the University of Cape Town amongst jazz vocalists from multiple generations, mine, the one before me, and the one that exists now. All of us just sharing this music, completely bowled over by your singing, your scatting, your ensemble work. There are two guitarists who've appeared on all three albums, who we should mention, Romero Lobambo, longtime collaborator of yours, also Marco Pereira. And it opened up our ears to a world that I don't know that we would have discovered otherwise. So I always say thank gosh for MySpace and then <laughs> hard copy albums. All this stuff will be extinct at some point. But really you have a whole little community of South African jazz vocalists who poured over those albums and who transcribed the tunes that were more obscure, who maybe listened with new ears to the Jobim tunes that were well known. And we just loved them. What do those three albums mean to you when you look back? You, you spoke so beautifully about them. Thank you. You know, as you as I live my life, I don't really stop. And it's a good thing that you don't. Otherwise, you'd be a complete narcissist. But <laughs> I would be one. But, you know, you make music and you send it out. And sometimes it feels like it's in a vacuum, right? Nobody, nobody knows it. Nobody listens to it. But to hear you say that, you know, a few singers enjoyed it and learned from it, that's, that's what I want because that's what I've done with the records that I grew up listening to, whether it be Ella Fitzgerald, Ella and Joe Pass, where, you know, whatever the and Jobim and Elise, Elise and Tom, I mean, those records were my records. And to be included as, you know, as someone who's contributed to this art form this way, it just makes me incredibly happy. Um, I don't assign my music to students, but when they come back to me and say, oh, I heard this piece that you did, it just it makes my day. I mean, it really, it's so gorgeous to hear that. I feel just so grateful. Um, so those records, uh, the, the reason I made that first record is that my dad in 1998 was diagnosed with um, with prostate cancer. And and that was a cancer that we didn't think was going to kill him. And it didn't. It ended up, you know, metastasizing and becoming. But he lived a long life after that. He ended up die, dying in 2008. So he lived 10 years. But at that time, I had done a trip to Japan. I was playing in Japan. And I came back to, through Brazil somehow before coming back to the U.S., and I sit down with them and my mother tells me, you know, your dad is sick. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to stay and I'm going to record some things with him. You know, at the time I didn't have children, so I could just change my schedule. Okay, I'm going to stay a few extra days. So we went and they luckily also had a studio. So I went in the studio 
and I record it with my dad, just live to that. So no mixing, no nothing, just you play, I sing in the same room in front of each other. We record it and then I save those. And then I came back to New York and I said, Romero, I want to record a few things with you. I recorded four things with my dad. Why don't I do four things with you? So I recorded with him and then went back to Brazil for something else, recorded with Marco. And, and then collected that and made that record. Brazilian Duos was made. So it wasn't a record also that I said, oh, let me make a record and let me, we just plucked songs from the air, really. Okay, what should we do? And Romero and I had a repertoire because we had been playing together. So we had Madame, we had some songs that we had already done and that I had started arranging. And what I, what I found out is that I wanted to sing these songs because they meant something to me and my dad in a way. So it was in my homage to him because I didn't know how long he was going to live anymore. And I wanted to document the fact that I had grown up with this man playing guitar nonstop. I mean, th that's all he did day and night was, you know, strap his guitar on. So we'd be in the kitchen cooking and he'd be playing. We'd be in the watching a, a soccer game on TV, he would be playing. So the soundtrack, the real background of my life is my dad sitting and playing and humming melodies. And he grew up in the same town as Ron Gilberto. He grew up as a friend of Ron Gilberto. They grew up together in the same Northeast town, you know, Juazeiro da Bahia in the Northeast of Brazil. And João, when João went to, to Rio, he called for my dad. That's what they used to do. You know, they'd send message, message, message. And then my dad took, went to Salvador first and then moved to Rio and stayed in the same guest house, like boarding room house that João had stayed. And um, so for me singing those songs that my dad had learned from João and with João growing up. And so some of the sambas that I sang are very old from the 20s and 30s and 40s. And then I sort of try to bring it back to the moment, which was Toninho Horta. So the records for me also, what they mean to me is that they mean it's, they're biographical in a way, right? Even though I wasn't present at the writing of certain sambas in the 20s, I feel like through João and through these, these composers, we carry this tradition that it comes to me via my dad and then I can send it forward, you know? And, and I think Rosa Passos has done the same, João has done the same. But my, my thing with, that I think it differentiates my work from Rosa is, of course, she's a guitar player, so beautiful, you know? She's, we call her João Gilberto in skirts, right? Because she can do that beautiful thing of playing and singing and phrasing. My thing was just to take this repertoire and put a, a more jazzy, a freer stamp on it. So scatting more, maybe doing just, just the song once, like in a Chet Baker thing where you just do the song and walk away and leave it there hanging. And, and, and then including some improvisation, both vocal and the guitar, and then giving these guitar players also the freedom to be who they are. So they're not being arranged by somebody outside. Like we were, I'm arranging some lines for me and some concepts, like more of the, the structure of the piece. So what I arrange more for us are form, like the form and how I see the, the story being told. But the harmonic language, even the choice of guitars on Brazilian Duos 2, I play with Swami Jr., who's a dear friend and a great producer. He produced Omar Portondo and has produced a bunch of people in Brazil, including Marco and including Tony Orton. He's a great, beautiful player. He plays a seventh string guitar and then Marco plays an eight string guitar on Brazilian Duos 2. And so expanding the sound of the guitar and showing that beautiful tradition of Brazilian music of guitar playing that doesn't happen anywhere else. I mean, there's guitar playing in many countries of the world, but the way that it's played in Brazil. So I feel like the legacy that I left isn't just mine, but it's the fact that I invited these musicians. So there's the repertoire, there's my singing, my arranging and my sort of idea of mixing jazz and Brazilian music in a way that felt pure to me. Um, 
and then leaving the legacy of these players also, which for me, it's sort of paying homage to my dad. My dad was not a schooled musician, but these players are incredibly schooled and they, they know the names of chords and things. My dad just played by ear. And so leaving this beautiful legacy, this beautiful tradition of Brazilian guitar for me means a great deal. And I, I hear as much from singers as I hear from guitar players who call me and write to me constantly, almost daily, really, you know, on Instagram, on, on Facebook, saying, I love these records, what you've done for the guitar, you know, and, and so I'm just happy that it was just, you know, fortuitous that I, that I hooked up with these people, you know. Oh, I'm so glad I asked about that because I had no idea about the personal connection to that first album and even how it came about and that it it meant so it means so much to you from a personal perspective and it tells us even more about your sense of identity and heritage and what this music means to you and, and just to add one thing nikki was about you know i was also very lucky that i hooked up with a label like sunnyside because um you know what other home would, would just be so welcoming and say and when, when i say you know i want to make another record of this trilogy okay great go ahead do it you know and the first one i i recorded and gave it to him. And then from then on, he supported the recording, which meant he paid for things, right? Which wasn't heard of also, because most labels nowadays, they take your product and they license it and they, you know, they might print it and might do whatever, if it's still even being printed, I don't even know anymore. But um, but but it's hard to get a label to really fund your projects. And Sunnyside just gave me carte blanche and, and let me, um, in the, they were not expensive records to begin with because they are done live. And that's another thing also is that at a time when everybody is manicuring everything so much and just, you know, perfecting and we decided on all those records and really most of my records, if at all, whenever possible, we record everything live, completely live as if it's being mixed already, you know. And so everybody knows what they're going to sound like and we take the integrity of it each take and we keep it. So it is done like a jazz record, you know, and, and that's something also that was very important for me was to, to make sure that these were recital-like, that if we walked on stage, we could do this music. It would be different, but it, it would be equally good. We should just mention when you say he and Sunnyside, you're talking about Francois Alacan, who's the... Yeah. That's correct. And, you know, he is as much the, I mean, he's a, he's sunny side. So it's yeah. impossible to just speak about a label because he is the label. There may be two people in the label, him and somebody who helps, you know, and answers the emails, but he really is the face of it. And, and someone again, who like my parents did created a community. Uh, my parents had a record label in Brazil. They put out 50 records, you know, in the span of 10 years. And Francois, I know, I know his heart is in the right place at every, every moment, you know, and, and, and what he's done for the community in New York, the, the friends of mine that he's supported over the years and the kind of music he's put forth uh, are incredibly important to me too, as, as, you know, like being a part of that family. Yeah, there's great integrity to everything that they release. And they're very lucky to have this working relationship with you because Lucien, I think it's also testament to the way that you view all relationships, whether they're musical, whether it's between you and a label, you and a producer, that there's, I mean, it's very jazz in so many ways. And as you say, you're growing up in the community and the family in which you did in Brazil really kind of laid the groundwork for that kind of outlook and appreciation for that being a very big part of what you do and being a musician. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I just can't say enough about him and, and what he's done for me. Also. 
Madame diz que a raça não melhora, que a vida piora por causa do samba. Madame diz que o samba tem pecado, que o samba, coitado, devia acabar. Madame diz que o samba tem cachaça, mistura de raça, mistura de cor. Madame diz que o samba é democrata, é música barata sem nenhum valor. Vamos acabar com o samba, Madame não gosta que ninguém sambe. Vive dizendo que samba é vexame. Pra que discutir com Madame? Vamos acabar com o samba, Madame não gosta que ninguém sambe. Vive dizendo que samba é vexame. Pra que discutir com Madame? Vocês vão ver gente cantando concerto Madame tem um parafuso a menos, só fala veneno Meu Deus, que horror o samba brasileiro Democrata brasileiro na batata é que tem valor If you're such a fantastic storyteller, and of course the name of this new album is Storytellers, and the theme of stories and storytelling is a thread that has run throughout your music. Even if we quickly just look back at some of the titles of your albums, they're references to literature. You've got the poems of Elizabeth Bishop and you've got Neruda, both poetry as lyrics. There's references to books, the Book of Chet, the Book of Longing, and there's reference to speech, right? In Speaking in Tongues, which I love that album with Gregoire Moret and others and Lionel Luecki. So this album in many ways Aside from the fact that it's your 10th album and 10 is this kind of round number, it feels like a very grand reflection uh, on your musical adventures up to this point. So can you tell me more about that theme, especially in how it pertains to the songs that were chosen for this album? That's a loaded, super loaded question. Wonderful, but I, I, <laughs> I, you have to tame me back, bring me back if I take a moment and then go. Um, okay. So again, because it wasn't made as a record, when we, uh, Vince just said, you know, we should have a theme for the concert. It's important to have a theme that groups everything. And uh, and I said, okay, so it's going to be Brazilian. He said, you know, we should have something of yours and something of mine. And so we picked those right off the bat. I said, okay, maybe this piece from me, this piece from you. And then I said, but you know, what draws, draws me to Brazilian music is really the stories that are being told. You know, it's so, even, Nikki, even when we're singing wordless music, even when Milton is going, la, 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 you know, even if he's singing Ponta Giaria with lyrics or without lyrics, just the combination of intervals, the way it's sung, the way it, it comes, you already see something. So it's cinematographic almost, right? Milton's, vo Milton's voice, Jobim's intros, even before you come to the melody, right? There is some you know just that intro what precedes the music even already puts you it's like it's a movie starting with a little intro and you see scenes from afar then you come and do a close-up and there you are in the living room with the family right so these composers they compose whether they're the lyricists or they're in a partnership collaboration with somebody else there is something about Brazilian music to me that it, it's always about storytelling. So it's impossible, it's inextricable, like you can't remove the story from the song. So it's not just ta 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 you know, it's not that. It's something that comes imbued with story, with feeling, with emotion, with characters, 
right? There's always a character, and if, oh, the character can be the earth, it can be, uh, you know, a tree, but there's always a character that tells something. There is also, even as still as Brazilian music can be, and Bossa Nova certainly is, there's a lot of stillness in this sort of slow, lulling kind of hypnotic thing that Bossa Nova has. It really is about describing a moment as opposed to a narrative over time, right? But even though it, it's, even if it's a smaller moment, within that moment, there's so much detail, there's so much what I call the grid of everything, like how it holds together in Brazilian music. There's always a story, there's always a beginning, a middle, and sometimes an unfinished ending that keeps lingering and going. And that's why we also love vamps in Brazilian music, right? A lot of our songs end in vamps because who are you to say it's over? You know, okay, so maybe something else will happen. Maybe another love will come. Maybe you're broken and you'll be broken again, but that brokenness will create resilience and that resilience, you know, like there's always this unfolding. And um, so when we sat down to talk about it, I'm sorry to say I led because I lead, you know, that's what I do because <laughs> I'm a leader. Um, but Vince, not that he took a back seat, but the music was Brazilian. So he was deferring to me also. He's very polite, lovely guy. And so we came up, he had already had enormous experience working with Ivan Lins. He's a dear friend of Ivan Lins and had already arranged Ivan's music for the WDR. So he knew of Ivan's music very well. And then our job became to, to try to find the core of storytelling on the record. What would it be? And I, I just keep going back to Jobim. So then it was, we, we picked Machita Pere, which is at the, the heart of the record. And it's a very long, large, um, and very extreme in terms of range within the band itself. A piece on Jobim speaking about this common man, this Brazilian man, who's not a man, it's a woman, it's a, it's a being, uh, who is from this part of Brazil, which is central to Brazilians, which is the, the, the rural, less urban, completely non-urban, I guess, man who, who grows up and lives off the land and from the land, and then his life. And, and so it's a journey through 12 keys that Jobim does. He touches on every key harmonically and you don't really feel it because it modulates so slowly. Um, and, uh, and it's the, the, the story of this João, this common man, who's also João Gilberto, but it's not João Gilberto, it's João as John, this common man, and this everyday man, every, every man. And, um, and so that became the, the core of the record, but then it became clear also that we couldn't just record one Jobim, so then we picked other things. And, and then it was Ivan Lins, it was Chico Buarque, it was Javan, it was Lenini, it was Ginga. And of course, there were hundreds more that we could have gone to. And shame on us for not picking a woman. There's a woman I love, you know, Joyce, Sueli Costa. I mean, there's, there's beautiful composers who are female. But then I was represented there, so I thought, okay, I'm there. I'm, I'm a woman, I count. But what really became hard, Nikki, was paring it down. I mean, we started, we had like maybe 80 <laughs> songs, and then we had to come down to, I don't know, 10, maybe nine. And we had a Milton on the record, on, on the, 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 the concert that we did. We had a few extra things, but they didn't make it to the record because the recording, because a lot of it was done live and without the intention of making a record. So then the quality of the recording, whether the, the horns were not blended well within, you know, like just moments, choices that we made that are hard to make, because sometimes you love, uh, some recordings even for their, mostly even for their imperfections, right? When Miles cracks a note, nobody cares. It's the cracked note that gives it, you know, its thing. It's like when you, when you have an old vase that breaks and you, you go in Japan and you see these old beautiful vases and they're cracked and they're, they've been repaired with a filament of, of gold or something that just makes 
the crack is the gold is the crack and the crack is the gold and that's what it makes it so special the, the bowl itself is you know dirt right but the rest the, the fact that it broke and it was brought back to life so we we saved i mean a lot of things are not perfect on that record but they're beautiful but some things just didn't make the cut and uh, and the hard thing was really choosing because there's such an abundance again of, of great compositions in Brazil and great composers and people who are worth mentioning. I had never recorded Ginga. I love Ginga. So for me, it was an opportunity. Lenini, I had never recorded Lenini and Lenini and Ivan wrote a song together. So we picked that one. And then also a balance. I'm, I favor ballads and it's very hard for me not to make another record of ballads. I, I've made some and I've been putting a lot of people to sleep over the years on those records. <laughs> I've been told little, little children, you know, my friends, oh, so-and-so loves sleeping to the book of chat. And like, Great. <laughs> That's Larry Coons on guitar, man, you know, Larry Golding's on piano. So go ahead, you know, um, but I, I favor ballads and, you know, I'm a sucker for them. I just think that something about sitting on a note or letting time just unfold slowly and waiting for that silence, you know, and what's going to happen next. All those things are so interesting to me. And it became a challenge because Vince was like, listen, we are doing a live concert. We need to put some Brazilian, you know. So then there was Gilberto Gil Samba, you know, Magic Copacabana, which is so beautiful. So we picked, it, it was an attempt to do a good live show and then it became a record. So I think it, it succeeded as both. And, and then important for me to say also is that the cover of the record is very unusual. It's not my photo. It's not Vince. It's not the band. We didn't include anything, you know, on purpose. And it's a beautiful photograph of Sebastião Salgado, who is one of the foremost photographers of Brazil, who's documented life on this planet and the hard life of Brazilians, but also Earth, just the, the, the you know, Earth. He's gone all over the world. He's lived in France for a long time. And he is, um, he was, he is an economist, but, you know, started photographing and became this incredible photographer with Magnum, with this agency and has made uh, one of his books called Genesis. That's where we took this photograph from. And it was very important for me that this had some connection because at the time the record was going to come out also, the Amazon was burning. And we have a president who's absolutely reckless and who's telling people to go and cut the trees down and kill the Indians. And you know, this is not just the lungs of the world, but this is prime earth for us. It's untouched that we need to leave this way. We can't go touch it. And we've been destroying it at a rate that's, you know, unseen in the world so uh, i wanted to i wanted for the record to be we are all storytellers but also sebastian this wonderful photographer as a storyteller as a silent storyteller because when you look at his photographs it's like music and all of a sudden you hear chords and you hear sounds and you're just washed with emotion whether it's a photograph of landscape or a human or uh, he did a beautiful uh, award-winning work that he did many years ago i want to say maybe 20 years ago now even more perhaps, um, of the gold diggers, the gold miners in Brazil, in Serra Pelada, in the Amazon, which was just, he went in deep into the caves and the mountains with them and photographed them. And it's just, it changed my life seeing that. So for me, he's someone that I was waiting for an opportunity to include some of his work with my work, just so I can, by association, feel like I'm a part of this. But it's so very important to me. It was very important to me and then to Vince also that the record, the cover of the record, which now means nothing because people look at thumbnails on a computer screen or a phone, but still as storytellers, we also wanted the story to be told in a visual way with just that one striking photograph. And no, there's no titles on the front of the record. It's just a photograph. And that's something also we had to fight for because usually labels, they want storytellers and they want 
this stamp and that stamp and the you know codes and things and we just made sure that it was just the, the, the photographs A quick note about how you can support the Jazz Session if you so wish. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generosity of listeners who enjoy these interviews so much that they decide to become members over at the Jazz Session's Patreon page. There are two tiers of membership, $5 and $10 a month. For $5 a month, you'll receive these weekly episodes a day early, and you'll also get a weekly track of the week, a mini episode where jazz artists offer up a track of their latest album, they tell you about it, and then you hear the song in its entirety. For $10 a month, you'll receive these perks and also a monthly bonus episode that you will receive a month before the general public receive it. It's called The Insider. It's a spin-off interview series that I created and it sees me interview jazz industry experts, managers, journalists, broadcasters, publicists about the work they do with jazz musicians. You'll also hear music from those jazz musicians throughout the interview. So head to thejazzsession.com slash join to get information about how you can become a Patreon member today. Now back to my conversation with Luciana. You're so authentic. I've never interviewed you before this, but I've had the very good fortune of attending a workshop of yours that you gave online last year in 2020. And you've been, you are a phenomenal teacher, it must be said. And you teach in a whole host of ways. I know you teach through Berkeley. I know, I think through Harvard, you've given some, yeah, yeah, MIT, some MIT, lectures. Sorry. MIT, sorry, 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 Harvard, <laughs> sorry, MIT. But you do talk beautifully and you are consistent in how you communicate, which is just so special and often quite rare. 
One of the things that you mentioned in this workshop that I attended was that you said something that was incredibly profound to me about the ability of the voice as an instrument, a presence, a texture, to impart signs of humanity, of human emotion. And it goes back and I was gonna, I was nearly gonna jump in because I was like, no, I need to ask you about this. When you were talking about the idea of a cracked note or you you likened it to um, the Japanese art form where you smash vases and then you plates and you put them back together and that there's now beauty in these so-called imperfections and in fact, they become part of the art. I don't know if you remember what you said and I wish I'd written it down verbatim, but it was something along, along the lines of, you do a lot of wordless singing and you're often brought in as another instrument. You happen to be a vocalist, that is the instrument, that's the, the sound. And you said something about nuances of the instrument kind of, I guess, resulting in a reminder that there's a human there making music. Do you remember what you said? It's a thought that I often share with people. People, people I'm all, often asked, and they should ask the other person, not me, but like, you know, why do Maria Schneider, why do so-and-so, why do they bring you into their music? Well, go ask them. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, you know, I come and I sing. But I do think that it is, and I haven't asked Maria personally or, or other people, but especially Maria's music. When I think about Maria Schneider's music, um, I adore her, of course, and, but her music is very perfect in a way. It is very, it resolves. Maria's music is something that makes sense. It's logical, it's sweet, it, it's got moments of sadness and, and um, you know, uh, sorrow, but it, it tends to resolve in a very happy or sweet or ah way. Like at the end, you're always left with this feeling. That's what I get from Maria's music a lot. And that's why I love it, I'm drawn to it because I don't necessarily live there. I mean, my thing is more like, at the end, I'm like, mm, you know, I'm kind of left, mm, um, which is where I live. And that's where I bring my humanity, I guess. But when I think of like, why would Maria Schneider bring a voice? She doesn't need it. She has all the top trumpet players in New York, the top saxophone players, top trombone players, piano players, Ben Monder on guitar. I mean, what else do you need? You know, Any, anybody could play circles around a melody and they play perfectly in tune and absolutely precisely in terms of dynamics and articulation. So doesn't need me. Why would she bring a voice in? Is to actually bring the humanity back. Because it, it, if it's not there also, it tends to become too clean and too hygienized, hygienized, I don't know, hygienic. Thank you. Thank you for translating for me. But it's, it's so that is that aspect of it. It's the fact that the voice is blending with the trumpets and now making the trumpet sound a tiny bit out of tune and a tiny bit out of phase because of the vibration of the voice against the constancy or the precision of the trumpets. So it's me aiming for a note that's high, coming with these trumpets who are completely in tune and me aiming for that note and trying to sing. And then the syllables and choices of vowels and consonants that I choose, not imitating an instrument, but trying to get some of the inflection of it, some of the, you know, okay, is he or she tonguing it or slurring it? Where is it going? Do they break here? Do they, is it more a legato? Does it have an, a, a climax or, or more of an accent on this note or that note. So me thinking about how to sing those lines and taking sort of in a way, Nikki, bringing it back to where Maria started because she sits at the piano and writes singing. And her voice, that's what she sounds like a little bit, you know, because I've been in the room with her. 
so then when I go and I may sound a little better, but also still not perfect because I'm not a perfect singer and I don't try to be and I'm not a classical singer. So it doesn't sound precise. And that's what she wants to bring back into her music. I think it's that feeling that this melody also was born before she was. This melody exists in the ether and it's for everyone. And again, this idea that Jobim had in Machita Pere, again, going back to the every man, like I'm every woman <laughs> and anybody can sing and sound. And, and I think it's opened up doors because younger singers come to me and say, oh my God, I'm singing with my big band at school because that, of the record with Maria Schneider. So kudos to Maria. And, but beyond me and Maria, I mean, Milton Nascimento, la 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 a line with Wayne Shorter on Native Dancer, right? So it goes back to that, or even before that, Vila Lobos doing Baquianas Brasileiras, right? Where there's a whole aria that's just wordless. And so who, who, who does that, right? But we've been doing that as humans forever. When there were no lyrics, people, you know, I go to synagogue and people, la, 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 you know, everybody, la, la, la. There is a moment in shul where you don't sing the, the prayer words. You just break into the melody and everybody joyously claps and dances. And, and so everyone can sing that way. And so it's communal. And I think it takes some of the perfection out of the music and again, brings the humanity and the vulnerability, which is what singers should cultivate. And we work so hard in trying to get out of it, you know, take away everything that's vulnerable, make your sound as perfect as possible, sing with as much strength and uh, it's like, no, don't do that. Find you, find your sound and then enhance it and strengthen it, but don't erase it. The point of singing is not to change you. The point of singing is to elevate you, is to explore you, it's to right, explore from you, from within you, to let you express. And we, as teachers, sometimes as teachers of singing, we, we do so much about erasing, you know, or match, match this, come towards this, you know? And this is one of the reasons why I love my vocal teacher also, my voice teacher, is because she doesn't do that. She's not interested in, she wants me to be me and Kate to be Kate and Theo Blackman to be Theo Blackman, you know, like everybody to be who they are and the most expressive singer he or she can be.
should mention when you refer to your vocal teacher, you're referring to the grand dame, I would call her, Jeannie Lovetri. I once heard something, Lou, and I don't know if it was a rumor. I'm trying to remember if, if Jeannie referenced you in a workshop or if I heard it from someone else. But it was about you going to Jeannie and saying that you wanted to have a very slow vibrato. vibrato. Yeah, Is that true? <laughs> So I had this dream, you know, coming from Brazilian music, we sing um, just a little bit of Brazilian history, Brazilian vocal history. So before the advent of microphones, a Brazilian singer had to belt and shout over the band, whatever that meant, right? So whether you're drunk in somebody's backyard and you have to sing over the five guitar players and everybody banging on some kind of thing that they found, a hubcap or a plate or a glasses with forks and, you know, anything, some kind of shaking gourd that fell off a tree, whether you're in the backyard or you're singing somewhere else, you had to fight for your voice to be heard. My dad comes came from the beginning of the, my singing was from that tradition. You sing in front of the band and we record with a sheet of zinc behind your back. That would be your reverb kind of thing that would project your voice forward. One microphone picks up everybody. So you're the closest thing to the microphone, but still you had to sing loud. With the advent of microphone and Jean Gilberto coming down to Rio and figuring, finding out that he can play softly and sing softly and he can still be heard. And the subtlety is actually the mouth sounds that you hear in his recordings. So that changed Brazilian singing, but it also took, you know, there's a cost to everything. It took the vibrancy of the voice away, right? So you no longer, hey, like you don't allow this thing. It's, Everything is very contained and introspective, which really matches the music. It was being done in apartments and written in little places in Rio, overlooking the bay. But you're not outside in somebody's backyard. You know, Bossa Nova is quiet and it's introspective and reflective, kind of like, you know, it's in. Um, and so with that, what happened also is that we, there's more tension, right? You're not releasing, you're not exploring everything that the voice has to offer. So what happens is that you sing with a straight tone, which matches also Chad Baker's playing and singing and you know where you're suppressing the vibration of the voice and you're just letting the tone be held la instead of la you don't allow the vibration to happen that's which is a vibrant voice uh, i'm not saying the brazilian voices are dead or they have no vibrancy but just a straight tone doesn't carry you know that that kind of frequency that that uh, that um that a, a, a tone that is allowed to vibrate does. So for many years, I had this really fast vibrato. And what I would do is that when it would pop in, I would suppress it. So I would cut my lines short because I didn't like, I, I don't even know if I know how to make it again. It was very fast and very nervous in a way, almost like a Dit piaf kind of, you know, French that way. And of course, vibrato is something cultural. It depends on who you listen to, how your parents speak, the kinds of music you, you grow up listening to. And for me, it was strictly Brazilian music and some world music and some jazz and some pop American music, but later. So the, the birth of my sound in my ear and in my throat is my dad singing with a straight tone in the living room. So... When I go to Jeannie and I start, you know, releasing things and looking, releasing tension that I had in my tongue and really working through finding my sound and freeing my voice and finding myself, I went to her and I said, I, I, I want to have this low vibrato that I just hear it and I think it's so beautiful and I want to be able to sing along the longest note in the world and let it vibrate at the end. Like I went straight and then I want to bring this terminal vibrato in. Can you help me? And the thing is that she said, you know, when I first started with her, she said, 
give me five years. And I said, okay, like, oh, five years of every week, you know, whenever I was in New York and I lived blocks away from her on the Upper West Side, I would go to her apartment and take a lesson. And I did that. I still do it. I took a lesson a few weeks ago with her, you know. So when she said, give me five years, I said, okay. She didn't say for the vibrato five years, but within those years that we were together, as my voice freed itself, as I found my sound more and more and more, and, and just felt this need to, to grow with my voice, I asked her and she kind of helped me get to it. But the way you get to finding your vibrato is singing through a lot of stuff that you don't like and singing long notes and long tones and working on your breathing a lot to really release everything and working on releasing tongue tension, which I had and still do tremendous amounts of. Um, and so it was, it was painful work in a way to get to it. But I find that now, and you can hear it in Brazilian duos too, how much more of that I can do and how much I'm like just so thrilled and like and surprised and like, oh my God, I can actually hold a note and feel sing legato in a way that I couldn't before. And it's my joy that I'm expressing there, but also this freedom. I feel now, I'm 55 now. I feel that I'm a better singer at 55 than I've ever been. I'm not that I'm singing every day now and I'm not because of pandemic, but um, I feel so much freer. I feel less afraid. I used to be afraid of singing long things and ballads and, and things that would require me to have breath support because I didn't have breath support. So my technical work has been one that it's not for me to sound like such and such and such, but for me to really free myself from these preconceived ideas that I had even about my own sound and about my abilities. Like now I feel able, even when I fail, like if I can't hold this longer, I'm laughing at it now because I know, oh, it's just a matter like if I work out for two weeks, I'll do it. It's available to me now because of a teacher who unleashed this thing and who helped me, who guided me. And that's why when you say you're a good teacher, listen, I, I've had the best teachers in the world. If I can do anything to honor them is to steal from them. <laughs> so I just borrow everything from all these incredible teachers and I try to put together and deliver it in my own way which makes it real, I think, for people and hopefully it inspires them. And that's what they've been to me. They've been inspiring. Jeannie has never put a wall in front of me. She's never said, you can't, ever. When I sang with classical orchestras, you know, and I've done a lot of that work with, on new music and jazz and Brazilian and folk and pop with Paul Simon and, 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 and you know, she's always said, there's nothing you can't do, just try. It will be you, it won't be like other people. But you can try, you can do it, and she's been incredibly inspiring to me. And I'm just every, every opportunity I have to speak about her, I do because listen, she's made me who I am. So I find it fascinating, Lyon, especially because again, external perception versus internal experience is just so vastly not <laughs> aligned. And so to hear that you had all these very human, very normal, I mean, you know, singers and musicians the world over, but that you had all these things that you were chasing after, but to also discover that you love ballads so much. And I was gonna to say to you, that's funny because I think that you're just unbelievably blazing when you're singing a samba and I, and, <laughs> and doing percussion at the same time, which is something I've been lucky to witness. But it's lovely to know now that because you love singing ballads so much, you can now luxuriate in that process with the tools that genius helped you unearth. It's great. Right, right. And then, and then this idea for me always in ballads that you can hold a note and become a counterpoint to something, right? So if I hold and this person is moving, then if I'm not there and he is holding or she's holding and then I move. And so those ideas of sound and silence and counterpoint and contrast 
are always in my mind, in the back of my mind. And I also find that what, what I love about teaching is that because I, I want to try to articulate something that works for me or that I'm curious about, it, it sort of archives this information for me in different layers. So I have more access to it. So teaching has changed also for me over the years where it sometimes, because I taught so much before when I was at Berkeley or Manhattan School of Music, it was so much of it that it kind of made me jaded, you know, like, oh God, another lesson, another student, another. But now because I can measure it more and I choose more and I'm also more experienced and I have more language underneath me, you know, and feel more confident, I find such joy in teaching. I finish lessons sometimes and I tell my, my, my husband and my son, I'm not coming for dinner now, you know, because I feel like I want to sit and write or I want to sit and sing because I've been inspired by my students. And that's something that I didn't understand it. You would feed me this way, you know? And now when I finish a class, I taught these seminars on Jobim uh, at MIT. They were very, very good for me, very successful. I learned a lot and successful in every way. But for me, the most success that I got from it is that at the end of each session, I just wanted to be in the room with myself at the piano, like noodling. Because by talking about him and by thinking about him, by listening to him, it just opened up like, oh my God, of course, when I talk about that chord and that relationship and that thing, now could I write something like this? And what is it? So then it's triggered and I just want to be alone. And of course, I can't be alone in a room for eight hours a day like I used to. Or I, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I, I'm struggling with now is not time, but this idea that when inspiration strikes, when you feel that craving about, oh, I really want to just be here doing this, um, that sometimes I can't continue that process for as long as I want. And so the other day when I had a lesson with Jeannie, I was very smart. I booked a lesson early enough here in LA and with my son busy and my husband doing something else that after the lesson, I could actually sing for another hour and a half because after she warms me up and after I'm ready, like all I want to do is just sing. Now I'm ready, you know? And so, but of course I record everything and so I can go back and replicate. But each day, as you well know, as a singer, is a new day for your voice. It's never the same. So that lesson that served you very well that day. So what I do sometimes is that um, I catalog, like when I title my lessons, it's not just the date, but I say slept well before and had a great, or was coming out of a cold or, you know, so I know in the future, if I have the same kind of pattern or, or you know, situation happening, I can plug in that lesson and maybe it will be helpful. And also she always, I mean, what I love about reviewing some lessons is that it's really about what she teaches me, but it's also about what she talks in between sometimes a thing or two, like some of the words, like you said, oh, you said something so beautiful or you said something so important. Some things that she gives me these morsels of wisdom that I can take in and, you know, and just cherish and, and spread, hopefully.
Lou, again, to reference that workshop that you gave uh, in 2020, which was about wordless singing and practice methodology, you also told us a wonderful story about a recording that you did with the Yellow Jackets, which is a group you've worked with before, and there was a last minute request for you to record on a song, which you had to learn incredibly quickly, and you used that experience as a teaching anecdote as to how you kind of triage, having to learn something that you don't know. I don't think you had a piano, I think you had a tuning fork, <laughs> maybe a, an iPod piano, and that story, I loved it so much because it just summed up beautifully exactly how superb your musicianship is and why people from the Vinces and the Maria Schneiders of the world through to the Romeros and the Lionels and everyone in between love working with you. And I thought it was extraordinary. Would you would you share that song, uh, that song, that story? And then I will also excerpt some of the song afterwards for listeners. Okay, so I don't really know, I mean, I don't know if <clears throat> if it's a story or just you know it happens and it's happened to me with other with Danilo used to happen often, but you know usually it's like you were in the studio and you you're called in. To, I was called in to sing three songs with the Yellow Jackets. I ended up on seven because when you're in the studio and they hear you sing and they go, oh my god, wouldn't it be nice to add voice here? And you're already there, so well, let's put a little voice here. So then you put a little voice, but this one was a complex. If I'm thinking about the same song because. I, I don't, I mean, it happened with maybe, I guess, four out of the seven that I did. Three I knew ahead of time, and then the other four just kind of happened. Um, but if it's this one... I'm thinking of everyone else is taken. Okay. Yes, everyone else. And um, and so that is a pianistic, like it's, you know, Russell writing, and uh, Russell Ferrante, who's a brilliant writer and very facile pianist, beautiful, beautiful player. And um, so when I'm... I have all these things that I've taught and that I've learned about ear training, about first calming myself down. So somebody hands me a piece of paper, I don't freak out, you know, I just, I go, okay, is there a bathroom nearby? <laughs> you know, and most of the question I've been asked, why are you going to throw up or something? No, but it's, I just need a quiet place with good reverb, good sound, so I can go and sit down and practice. So as you said, I don't usually have a piano. I'm in a hotel room or in a studio itself, and I can't learn from plucking notes out of a piano. So I just, what I do is that I, I just, you know, I find what I call the gestalt. I find these lines and these homes, you know, so I, I use solfege and I use this idea of finding a grounding key tonality for even if it's two measures at a time or three or one. And, um, you know, I usually go into a bathroom with my tuning fork and I just read from left to right. And people laugh at me because I say, yeah, you got to look at, you know, clef, key signature, time signature, work on anything that's rhythmic that comes before. And if there's any rhythmic thing, solve that. But in this case, it was a bunch of eighth notes, you know, consecutive eighth notes, I think pretty much. And um, and then just finding finding what makes sense. Um, luckily, I think there was a baseline also, so I, I could really get a sense of the tonality, like where where do I land here and what can bring me home? And this idea that we singers sing tonal music. so there isn't anything where you're going to fall out. You're not falling from a plane and you're going to break your bones when you land or die. You know, it's only music. So also taking the fear out of that. Sight reading is difficult. I'm not a great sight reader. I mean, if you put me in front of a jingle session with five other singers who are great at da, doo -doo -da, ba, doo -doo -da, I can't do it. I need five minutes, but it's just five minutes. You know, so I go outside, I look at it. I need to kind of see it and go, okay, that's that and that's that and that's that and that, okay. And then I go in and I'm more successful. 
but of course it's a studio also so you know and somebody else might have been playing the melody so it's not like i'm amazing it's just i have a method and i've had to do it so i think the thing also that singers sometimes forget is that i've had a body i mean it's not my body of work it's my life i've done this every day so yes it's easier for me but it's familiarity and that's the the thing that i try to always tell singers when they say i can't do it or i, I don't know how to do it and uh, it's because you haven't done it i i live this with my son right who's studying piano and I see in him, it's so clear. He starts a piece, it's like painful, and uh, and then day two, and then day three, and then day four, then day five, and then when he goes back to his lesson, there's music there. And his face changes. In the beginning, it's like cringy and frowny and uh, heavy and angular. And then as it goes uh, through the week, his semblance is more calm. And then at the end, it's joyous and there's a smile. And when he presents it, there's still mistakes and there's still, you know, slowing down and well the faster thing gets even faster and you know it's a mess but there's music and moments being made and the, the feeling that i have is that well if i'm fake you know if i if i mess up it's just music you know and a lot of it also comes from kind of faking it you know because i've done a lot of music i see the pattern of this line and i go and this one is so i kind of there is a bit of reading a little bit of ear training a little bit of guessing like uh, sort of intelligent guessing that comes from experience. And even if you mess up some stuff, I always, what I find also is that I've learned to read and thank God for Berkeley for that. You know, once the music starts, you don't end, right? So if you make a mistake here, you can find your dough, you go back, you know, you keep going. You don't, you know, there's no, ah, forget it. You just don't even have time to complain. You just keep going, 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 going. So the idea, you know, at Berkeley, we, we, we teach and I teach there now again, but I always teach my students, even outside of Berkeley, to conduct when they sing, right? So you see the passage of time, you have a sort of visual awareness of where you are downbeat, second, third, and then four, four, the upbeat and coming down, or if it's two, four, you know, down, up, down, up. And uh, so you have a visual awareness, you have your physicality coming through with the music, so you can actually feel music up and down. And then if something happens, you know, the next downbeat is down. So there's nothing to fear. It will come back again. That's, it's going to be there for you. And even if you just don't sing for four measures, because you don't know, something will, you can always mm, do, 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 Next time Do shows up, you're there. And then Do, Da, Di, Do, Da, Ba, Di, Do. You can keep going from where you ended. So I don't even know if I told you the story, whatever the story was. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> you did. It's just, oh, it's just. It, it, and with those guys, I mean, what, what happens, though, is that you kind of have to leave your ego out the door also because you are entering a room with giants, right? These people have played together for 40 years. They are Bob Minter. I mean, what are you going to say about Bob Minter? You know, it's just everything, right? Russell, I mean, you know, Will Kennedy. It's just incredible. So you either consider yourself an equal or you don't consider yourself anything and that's where i go right i'm not an equal because i can't be an equal to them i mean bob can play circles around me he can sight read anything he can play upside down you know <laughs> and read upside down you know and i can't do that so i don't compare myself i come in as this amorphous amoeba you know and i just walk into the room and then i sing and I surprise myself sometimes, Nikki, because I find myself teary, you know, teary-eyed because I, I sound sometimes, I'm not saying I sound good, but I sound like someone else sometimes. And I just go, oh my God, that came out of me. I didn't even know I had that sound in me. And it's not because it's good or pretty, but just because it's new. Wow, I was able to do that. Wow. And then when people play me back sometimes on, on interviews, they play back something to me 
I'm shocked. I'm going like, wow, did I do that at that time? At that time when I was going through that divorce and da da da, like I was still able to sing. Or like two days after giving birth, I sang. Oh my God, how did I do? Like you know, because we are incredible. If we also allow and believe that we are, I I believe I'm incredible. I believe you're incredible. I just think that we spend so much time in a negative space as singers. And if there's any message I, I try to send to my singers is that this is the most wonderful thing you could do. Imagine you, you're in a room by yourself, breathing and intoning. I mean, that's just, just the most primal thing people have done for thousands of years. Mothers did to children, grandmothers did to grandchildren. Men did calling cows and animals in the field, you know, and, and just a voice that can express. So if you can just latch onto that idea as opposed to where's my Instagram and my followers and my career and my friends and the money and the, if just stop right there and then go into the room without your ego and see what you get. You might just surprise yourself. But most of all, I walk out of every recording feeling so grateful and joyous because man, I was in that room with those cats making music. Shit. I mean, that's just the best thing in the world. You know? Well, and then they're going to hear that track now and uh, everyone will listen to it with new ears and a new appreciation. And that's going to be the name of your autobiography, Amorphous Amoeba. <laughs> a tale in 10 chapters by... There you go. Oh, send me that. Send me that on oh, an email. And I was forever. Thank you. That's so sweet. So sweet. Thank you note to everyone who makes this show possible, namely the Patreon members and the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the show's theme music. If you want to rate, review and subscribe the podcast, you can do that at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the Jazz Session online at Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Instagram and Facebook at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube channel to which you can subscribe where you can watch video excerpts of interviews with this season's guests. Now, back to the interview. A final question I wanted to ask you because it would be a bit of a missed opportunity if I didn't. Your husband, your partner, happens to be one of the great producers of our times, Larry Klein. Listen, he just walked in the room. I swear, can you just say hi to Nikki? She's interviewed. Look at this. Look at this. Nikki. Larry Klein. Hi, as we live and breathe. Hello. Hello there. Your ears must have been ringing. You you must have thought. I, I I just stepped in to get my wallet. <laughs> I was holding on to his wallet. That's what I do as his wife, you know, give me your wallet. Quite right. We're learning a lot about your relationship here too. Nice to meet you, Nikki. <laughs> nice to meet you too. So for well, charity, there is a Larry Klein. He exists. There we go. <laughs> a cameo appearance. So thank you, Larry. Now the tree, he enters the room, the tree trimmers are outside, so I apologize for the sound. 
I don't care. I don't care. Never it's just too, it's, it's all too good. It's all too serendipitous. <laughs> he is one of the great producers of all time, of our times. And, and I mean that somebody who you would give that label to, producer, in the purest form. It means, as you know, as many people know, a lot of different things in our industry. It covers a whole range of weird and wonderful tasks. You were speaking about your earlier albums, many of them having an approach of them being live, and then, of course, coming full circle, that Storytellers with Vince and WDR was not even supposed to be a recording per se. So you have albums that are recorded pre-Larry and post-Larry where you haven't worked with him and that you have worked with him as producer. So you're in the perfect position to analyze his work. And I wanted to know, what do you look for in a producer? And what are some of Larry's skills that you really value when he's producing you? Well, that second part is too large. I, I don't think we have time for that. But uh, I will start with the first part. What do I look for in a producer? Um, because I've recorded without a producer and now I've recorded with one of the greatest producers, but I've also been with other producers. Um, in, in also in all the side singing that I do, there are other people producing. I think what I look for is uh, intelligence, musical intelligence, and also human intelligence, like emotional intelligence, to be quiet when needed, to not necessarily say everything that's going wrong with something when while it's going wrong, and that comes to teaching also. Don't, don't pick on everything. Pick one thing that you think that person can might be able to improve in that moment. And then the other things you can address at a later date. It's like relationships, right? You don't tell your husband or your partner or your, you know, or your friend, oh, you do that and you do that and you leave the seat open and the da-da-da-da-da-da. You just pick one battle at a time and hopefully, you, you know, and also you learn to accept things. So I think a producer who can read the room and also collaborate, but also understand that the artist is the artist. So the, the record in the end, the Larry doesn't walk into an interview with me. When he walked in here today, but you know, but so I'm I'm by myself speaking about this music. So I have to stand by everything that this music has. So in the end, I need to be the one who makes the final choices on things. Yes, do I defer to a producer when it comes to maybe sound things or oh, you know, if I'm confused about something, yeah, sure, yeah, let's go with that. That sounds better. Okay, I'll go with you. But I have to also, as an artist, have my own driven ideas and you know, and self put this thing forward myself. And so I want someone who will be able to listen and who'll be able to also be, have that kind of quiet strength that a producer needs to have. And Larry, because he's a bass player and a very, you know, incredible musician himself. And people sometimes say to me, oh, does he still play? I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course he plays, you know, he's just not traveling as a bass player. I mean, at all the time or was traveling as a bass player all the time because he's busy producing and that's really what he loves to do he loves to be this person who is a facilitator of great ideas but also who can contribute but also remove himself so when i work with him these are the things that i'm looking for and now it's become what i look for anytime i walk into a session and it's tough because i don't find it often i find either producers who are ordering lunch i'm sorry to say that and that's a great thing we need somebody there to do it but it doesn't need to be a producer and it certainly doesn't need to be paid to do that the, the you know the, the fee of a producer but also producers who will say too much and and pick things for you and do things for you and it's like no i i also have ideas and i also or i would like to listen to what the piano player has to say and not you necessarily all the time so somebody who can yeah who can who can really allow for the best music for the best session to happen um and in the case of larry he's also very good about and and 
you know, picking mics and picking placements of things and saying, let's A, B these two mics. Let's record with both mics together. So I've recorded things where there's two mics, one in front of the other. So the second one also adds something to it, like an old Telefunken and, and you know, a Neumann or something or that vice versa. Or, or he has the sweet mics that he brings also, you know, that recorded everybody, right? Dylan, Joni, everybody. So you'd sing on those mics and I think you sound better too because you just think that you're better because those folks have sung on it. But, but when he's mixing, the choices that he makes, the, the placement of things, the, 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 you know, the dimensions of where the voice is, how the voice sounds, you know, opening a voice is not the same for everybody. Like when, when you say, I recorded and that week my voice was a little nasal or veiled or something. And I say, can you open the voice a little bit? If I make a request like that to Larry, I know where it's going to end. If I ask somebody else to do that, hello, you know, it might sound very sibilant and very high-endy and very thin and very metallic or because it's been opened, you know? So I look for a producer who can understand my language, my terminology also, and who can stand having me in the room. I'm very opinionated, <laughs> so I'm tough. Like I walk in the room, I can be very quiet, but I can also be very opinionated. And, and I think it's important to hear from people. I also like to hear from the musicians. So sometimes I write very skeletonian kinds of things, skeletal pieces, where there's a, a faint bass line and I say simile or, like this kind of just make your own thing and then i write some changes but then some moments i don't even like there's a g something and i say i write g something and i don't even know what the g is because the melody is minor and minor and major and this and that so someone like Lionel, you don't have to write for him <laughs> I mean, he is unbelievable and ridiculous and just incredible so if you write for him you can find him if you don't write for him he might surprise you and, and every take is different and then he brings his rhythmic thing which is unbelievable because you know he, he's African and, and he can hear in patterns that you don't even know exist, you know, and he can, you know, superimpose this over that and make it sound like it's you're drinking milk, you know, it's like nothing. Like, and and so why? Sh so Larry in the room with Lionel doesn't he doesn't say anything because he doesn't need to, and and maybe or he might say to Lionel maybe on the second chorus let's just leave a little more space so Gregoire can blah 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 and that's it and. And Lionel doesn't take offense because he's not telling him what to play. He's just saying, we'll, we'll let, um, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so have more voice here, right? Gregoire have a little more space. Okay, great. So the shaping of things, and I think his experience, of course, working as a jazz musician with, you know, with people like Joe Henderson, with Carmen McRae. He was a bassist for Carmen when earlier in the one when he was, I don't know, 18 or 17 with Willie Bobo, with Freddie Hubbard for four or five years in Freddie's band, you know, as a jazz bassist. So he, he brings that. And then also the fact that he went deep into pop music and rock and can draw from those, you know, from these traditions that are very different than jazz that are much more um, structured and, and, you know, in jazz, the freedom that we have in jazz sometimes is also punishing because if things are so free, then you miss structure sometimes. So the combination of these two things. So I, yeah, I look for someone who's really intelligent and kind and, uh, and who can put up with me and also who can love being together and creating something new. And I think Larry, even though, you know, he sometimes tends to work with similar artists because people gravitate towards him for a reason also, uh, but he's worked with Herbie, of course, and Wayne, and like, you know, in different, I mean, Herbie Hancock, of course, in New York, but uh, so producing people of that caliber, geniuses and legends, and then people who are just starting. And so how it's the same for him. It's, it's not a job. It's this 
brilliant opportunity to create. So I, I'm lucky that I go home or stay in, in this bedroom here <laughs> at my friend's house with a man who, who has so much knowledge and experience, but also who's always looking forward to this new thing, whatever the new thing is, and listens to singers and loves singers, loves listening to singers. I mean, that to me, you know, he loves me, not just because I'm Luciana, but because I'm a singer and he knows that also loves vulnerable voices, not voices that are full or necessarily just capable and competent, but also that lack something that because that lacking leaves space for something else. Right? So I, I yeah, I'm incredibly lucky. Oh, what a great answer, Lou. Wow. Oh, he must- The longest answer you've ever gotten. <laughs> no, I know. Oh, I just hung on to every word and it makes me start thinking when you mention all the people he's worked with that I think, oh, yes, his album with Sean Colvin and he must have stories for decades. Oh God. So so we literally were at dinner last night outdoors and here in LA, of course, it's so, so beautiful outside and the sun is setting. And uh, we were with my, my son and this couple and he st started telling a story and I'm like, okay, I've been with you for almost 15 years now. And that one I've not heard. And some are hilarious because he's from a time, he played a TV show, right, Larry, for a year live. So live TV, I mean, he has these experiences and has done, you know, all the major TV shows from today's show to, I mean, everything with everybody, right, over the years. And so listening to him talk about those experiences where I'm not around and from another time, because he's also from a different time. He's 10 years older than I am. So listening to those experiences and, and, and being able to learn from him, because I come from, he doesn't know as much about Brazilian music as I do. So be also being able to share my background with him and my stories from my parents who were also active musicians and, and a part of this community. So we have a lot in common and as, as different as we are and as distantly as we were like from all our lives, you know, like, he grew up here in LA, I was in Brazil, and then Boston and New York. There's so much commonality. There's just like parallel lives that were happening. And I mean, it was really a destiny, destiny really that brought us. I, like, I feel like, of course, it makes sense. We were meant to be together, you know, even though like the faintest idea that I would ever cross paths, we literally bumped into each other. So that was, uh, that was fun. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, I'm a hopeless romantic. And if you just put music in the mix and it's just... <laughs> I, again, all for the autobiography, Lou, just, you know. Okay, what, what, is, what is the Amorphous title again? Amoeba. <laughs> Double A, not triple A, I don't know. Oh my God, I love it, I love it. I'm going to have to keep this one. So. Yeah, Amorphous Amoeba, I'll remind you, don't worry. Um, uh, Lou, I'll credit you, I'll credit you. <laughs> yeah, well, the, uh, of course. I mean, we have this now. This is my legal document. Um, t working title, bye. Um, Lou, well, I mean, Storytellers is a beautiful album. Congratulations. It's such a fantastic document of just stunning musicians and mus musicianship from, you know, two sides of the world. And uh, I just hope that, yeah, I hope you get to play the music more. And by the sounds of it, given all the repertoire that had to be shelved, maybe there'll be a Storytellers 2 and 3 if we're lucky. Yeah. I would love, I, listen, I would jump at it. Don't even ask me. Uh, but so do we do have concert schedule. We are going to Miami in January. We're going to New York in March, I think, of next year. So, you know, it's just, it's been delayed. But uh, eventually we're going to get to play in LA and play in New York and, and these major markets, which would be so nice to just get the band on stage and, you know, and make music together and share. It would be, it would be lovely. Thank you. And we're all looking forward to what comes next. You're so prolific and timiest in, in releasing new music. So I feel like you spoil us. I'm working on something. So, you know, I can't talk about it because they're not happening right now because nothing's happening. But uh, 
but you know, it's gonna come out at some point. Amazing. Well, we'd love to have you back on the show when that's out. We'll do it. Big kiss. Thank you, Lou. Much love. Thank you. Bye. The stick, the stone, it's the end of the road. The rest of a stump, a little alone. A sliver of glass, it is life, the sun. It is night, it is death, it's a trap, it's a gun. The oak when it blooms, the fox in the brush. A knot in the wood, the song of a thrush. The wood of the wind, a cliff, a fall. A scratch, a lump, nothing at all It's the wind blowing free It's the end of the slope It's a beam, it's a void It's a hunch, it's a hope And the riverbank talks of the waters of March It's the end of the strain It's the joy in your heart The foot, the ground, the flesh and the bone The beat of the road, a slingshot stone a fish, a flash, a silvery glow, a fight, a bet, the range of a bow, the bed of the well, the end of the line, the dismay in the face. It's a loss, it's a find, a spear, a spike, a point, a nail, a drip, a drop, the end of the tail, a truckload of bricks in the soft morning light. The shot of a gun in the dead of the night A mile, a must, a thrust, a bump It's a girl, it's a rhyme It's the cold, it's the mumps The plan of the house The body in bed And the car that got stuck It's the mud, it's the mud A float, a drift, a flight A wing, a hawk, a quail The promise of spring And the riverbank talks of the waters of March It's the promise of life The joy in your heart A huge thank you to this week's guest, Luciana Souza. It was such a delight to speak to her. Her album, Storytellers, is out now on Sunnyside Records and you can find all the information about the tracks played in this show in the show notes for the episode, which will be posted at thejazzsession.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Nikki Schrerer, and I look forward to seeing you next week for another conversation about jazz here on The Jazz Session. <laughs>